Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. It had a character of its own, wrote the author Elizabeth Gaskell, of a 19th century town in the north of England. As different from the little bathing places in the south as they again from the continent, the colours looked greyer, more enduring, not so gay and pretty. She notes the lead-coloured cloud the air with its faint taste and smell of smoke, the long, hopeless streets of regular-build houses, all small and all of brick. The novel North and South was published more than a century and a half ago in 1854 and remains a lyrical reminder, if one were needed, that there has always been in England a North-South divide. And it's not just the weather or the accents or even the attitude. It's something running much deeper than that. My own mum grew up in London, and that whole side of my family have always felt a long way away from the Scouse rallies up in Liverpool on my father's side. We go to two different family do's every Christmas, one at either end of the country. Always great fun, full of great people, and absolutely chalk and cheese. Now, the economic disparity between different parts of the country is well-documented and pretty stark. An academic study in 2018 found the UK had higher levels of inequality between its different regions than any other large wealthy country, including the US, France and Germany. But after all these years and decades and centuries, tackling the North-South divide has suddenly become in vogue. Regional economic development, devolution, local regeneration, equity of education and healthcare and opportunity. These wonky, unglamorous, long-ignored issues are suddenly all the rage, brought together by the current Prime Minister under the mysterious umbrella that he calls levelling up. 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 Levelling up is not a jam-spreading operation. It's win-win for the whole United Kingdom. Levelling up. Levelling up. Levelling up. Levelling up. Levelling up. Levelling up. It's invisible, electronic tendrils, removing chewing gum. You are never more than 15 minutes away from a high-quality Levelling up. That's why this government is so obsessed with levelling up. Levelling up. The slogan so ubiquitous, they named a whole Whitehall department after it. And on Wednesday, in the House of Commons, Boris Johnson's new levelling up secretary, the disco-dancing Michael Gove, unveiled his long-awaited white paper and what it actually means in practice. This white paper lays out a long-term economic and social plan to make opportunity more equal. It shifts power and opportunity towards the North and Midlands, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. If underperforming places were levelled up towards the UK average, unlocking their full potential, it could boost aggregate UK GDP by tens of billions of pounds each year. Now, the white paper is 332 pages long, which pretty much makes it a novel in my eyes, and covers everything from trade exports in the ancient city of Jericho to the urgent need for a new marketplace in modern-day Aberdeen. But at its heart are 12 core missions for the government to deliver by the end of this decade, covering regional transport, productivity, levels of crime, life expectancy and much more besides. Now you'd be forgiven for thinking from hearing the government bang on about this stuff that this is in some way a new idea. Level up the country, reduce the inequality gaps, 
make other towns and cities as rich and productive as London? Genius. Why did no one think of this before? Well, guess what? They did. Again and again and again. With different names and different badges and different slogans, every government over the past hundred years has made speeches and policies and investments which were meant to tackle this issue. So, did any of it work? Did we learn any lessons? Is anyone paying attention to all the stuff we've tried before? From Politico, I'm Jack Blanchard, and this week on Westminster Insider, we're looking at the history of the North-South Divide, and why there's nothing new at all about levelling up. The North-South Divide is literally as old as the hills. Sometimes England is described as having a Jurassic Divide. There's a ridge of Jurassic limestone that stretches from Dorset right up to Yorkshire. To the northwest of that is largely a highland zone with very hard rocks suitable for raising sheep. You tend to get isolated farmsteads. To the southeast of it, you get arable land, much richer, you get villages growing, a quite different culture arising. That's an oversimplification, but it shows how deep the roots of this thing go. This is Brian Groom, the ex-Financial Times journalist from the northwest of England, whose new book, Northerners, A History from the Ice Age to the Present Day, will be published by HarperCollins this spring. There's always been consciousness of some kind of north-south divide. People were aware of it, and there have been economic and cultural differences right into prehistory. It goes back a long, long way. Presumably those differences in geography and geology then lead to different types of economies appearing in different parts of the country. Yes, yes. It's not a simple divide because, after all, there are great crop-growing areas in the north, such as the Vale of York and the Northumberland Plain. But it is there, and it does, does lead to a different type of economy. Can you see an economic divide between north and south or southeast and elsewhere that stretches back beyond the Industrial Revolution? Or is that a relatively new phenomenon in the last couple of centuries? It's hard to tell exactly what the economic divide was back in prehistoric or Anglo-Saxon times, but among the most difficult times was the period of William the Conqueror. Most of the revolts against his rule took place in the north, and he crushed them absolutely brutally in what is known as the harrying of the north, um, when um, he destroyed all the crops, trying to prevent any future army from being able to live off the land there. And it's estimated that anything up to 100,000 people starved, and it took decades, if not centuries, for the North to recover from that. But better times for the North lay ahead. The North was growing faster than elsewhere, particularly in Yorkshire in the 12th and 13th centuries. Its population was growing at more than double the national rate. And you saw the uh, the creation of the great monasteries in Yorkshire like Riveau and Fountains. A lot of it was to do with the woolen industry um, and to do with Cistercian monks who kind of industrialised wool production in Yorkshire. They thought, well, if we, they created all these farms and they employed what they called lay brothers, which we would now call precarious gig economy workers to come and work them. <laughs> and they, uh, instead of having little small holdings with a few sheep, they had massive farms with lots of sheep. They collected all the wool and they took it to other monasteries that specialised in um, weaving it and turning it into cloth. That's fascinating. And so at that stage, the North was, would you say it was richer than the South or as rich as the South? There's actually probably been no point in history when the North's been richer than the South. It was growing more rapidly, much more rapidly during the Industrial Revolution, but it never managed to overtake the accumulated wealth you have in the South from centuries of of, of rich farmland. Even in the Industrial Revolution, most of the millionaires were in the South. And the Industrial Revolution was obviously a, a landmark moment for the north of England. Was that a form of levelling up in its day? Oh, it certainly was. It was quite extraordinary. You've got a, a region, parts of which were among the most remote and backward, you could say, in Europe, was quickly transformed into the place that the Industrial Revolution developed, which is regarded by economic historians as the key event in human history. Eventually, it enabled populations to grow and people to become more prosperous without resulting in a Malthusian trap of starvation or war. And it's absolutely extraordinary that happened in the North. Lancashire in particular, before the Industrial Revolution, in terms of wealth, became, I think, 35th out of 39 English counties, according to tax records. 
and by the 1840s it was second. That shows how much wealthier it became. And you also saw Yorkshire and Durham and Northumberland coming up the league table too. So why, of all the regions of the world, was it the north of England where the spark of the Industrial Revolution was lit? Victorian scholars tended to attribute it to the genius of the British, naturally. But Brian Groom says it largely came down to the land. Copious supplies of fresh water, a damp climate for cotton, massive coal supplies, access to iron ore and chemicals. And very importantly also, Lancashire in particular was close to the port of Liverpool and access to slave-grown cotton from the West Indies and then from America. Was there ever a prospect that the Industrial Revolution would lead the north of England to become the premier economy of England? Or was it that never likely, do you think? Well, for a period, it, it arguably was. Certainly it was driving growth. But the problem was that though it established some great industries, they weren't innovating fast enough. Other countries were catching up and it wasn't really developing new ones to replace them. So the North's population peaked in 1911 as a share of England's population. And its economic output peaked around the First World War at 30% of British economic output. And now it's down to 20%. That's the extent to which it has seen relatively decline over a century since then. The North's backward slide did not go unnoticed in Whitehall. From the late 20s onwards, we start to see efforts to level up, as we now call it. Um, the first one was under Stanley Baldwin's Conservative government in 1928, who created a thing called the Industrial Transference Board, which aimed to retrain workers from the older industries into expanding industries. But that was criticised because it was sucking talent away from the depressed areas. So ever since then, for decades after that, policies shifted towards trying to bring jobs to where the workers were with mixed levels of success. And did the Second World War exacerbate the problem or did it actually pause the, the decline for a while? Well, it paused it slightly for a period that the North industries were suddenly in demand again. Shipyards, the steel, textiles for uniforms all helped the North during the war. At the end of the war, we had a thing called the Distribution of Industry Act in 1945, which led to building of about a thousand advanced factories. But then a bit of complacency got in because the post-war boom helped everywhere, including the North. So Winston Churchill's government in the 50s started winding down regional policies because there was some relief coming. But all that time, the northern industries were falling inexorably behind. For example, in the late 50s, Britain started importing cotton goods for the first time since the Industrial Revolution. It became a net importer, which was a, a bit of a moment. And at that point, government started waking up again. The Conservative government at the time started imposing controls over whether, where you could build factories to encourage some to come to the north. And they had some success, but all these policies never completely tackled the problem. And was the problem essentially global competition? Yeah, global competition and insufficient innovation and an element of complacency, I think. Was Britain a very centralised state at that time in the, in the wartime and post-war period? Britain's been a centralised country for a long time. Very, things like the, the creation of the welfare state was centralising, um, just as the creation of a unified civil service in the 19th century was centralising. But Harold Wilson tried to promote regionalism by creating regional planning councils in the 1960s, but they didn't have very many powers. He did things like increasing regional industrial subsidies and his government um, um, office developments were banned in London and Birmingham to try and encourage them in the north, which probably nobody would do now. And economic disparities did narrow a bit in the 1970s and probably the peak spending on regional industrial subsidies peaked around the mid 70s. But then they whined again when deindustrialization came along in the 1980s. Margaret Thatcher's government is obviously broadly seen as, a, as, a, as, a, as another watershed moment in this story. But what I'd really like to know is, to what extent was this already happening and had this already happened before Margaret Thatcher's policies started to take effect? You know, you, you often read the statistic that more pits were closed under Labour governments than were ever closed by Margaret Thatcher, for example. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that is that, that is true. A lot of pits closed in the 1950s and 1960s. In the cities, for example, Manchester's population peaked in 1931. 
it's a more of a gradual process. There have been moments of drama and moments it may have accelerated, but it's been a gradual process over a century. You can't just blame Thatcher's government or any one particular government for that, I don't think. Margaret Thatcher comes in with policies that are pretty well remembered for the impact they had on the North. Are they are they rightly remembered? Was it as dramatic as, as, as we now think it was? Well, the, the early 80s recession certainly was a very, very difficult period for the whole country and particularly for the North. It's not a unique period, but it was an exceptionally difficult one. I think probably the policies of the time probably brought on the deindustrialization more quickly at that point that it was happening in other countries like France. It probably over time has happened at a similar rate, but a lot of it was concentrated in the sort of 1981 to 1983 period. But uh, Thatcher had such chutzpah. One great quote I found for the book is uh, she told Parliament in 1989, after she visited Northern England, that the North-South divide has gone. Um, she found that business is flourishing, businessmen are optimistic, unemployment is falling. So it was over, apparently. But it wasn't over, of course. No matter which random, flourishing northern business Thatcher's advisers might have taken her to visit. Now, I'm not here today to argue the rights and wrongs of Thatcherism. But there can be no doubt that her radical monetary policies, the deindustrialization process that she encouraged and the lack of support offered to some of those worst affected by the changes to the economy, left deep and lasting scars in some parts of the country, even as others benefited hugely. But even Margaret Thatcher had a plan for levelling up, at least one or two of the most deprived parts of England. Or rather, one of her junior cabinet ministers did. A blonde, highly ambitious environment secretary, by the name of Michael Heseltine. I had spent quite a lot of time flying over the east end of London. I had seen this incredible 6,000 acres of decay. Uh, the docks had moved downstream. There were no private sector housing. The young left, often to go to the new towns that were being built uh, in the south of England. Uh, so uh, I said to my officials, as Secretary of State, look, dig up the papers that I had prepared in the early 70s and get me the proposal that we worked out for a development corporation. Heseltine had had his eye on regenerating London's disused Docklands back since he was a junior minister in the Environment Department as part of Ted Heath's government. Now, back in office in 1979 as Secretary of State, he was determined to put his grandiose plans into action. His central idea was to create a new, publicly owned and publicly funded body, a Quongo no less, to lead the regeneration of East London. Thatcherism, this was not. The next step was to get my colleagues' agreement to this process. And uh, <laughs> the truth of the matter was there was serious opposition from the Chancellor, Geoffrey Howe, on the grounds that it would cost money, and there wasn't any money, there was very serious opposition from Keith Joseph, who, of course, was a powerful figure in Margaret's cabinet, on the basis that, look, Margaret, this is exactly what we said we weren't going to do. This is intervention. This is the government taking a lead where the private sector should be in charge. So we had a meeting, the four of us, in number 10, and I listened with care to what Geoffrey and Keith said, and it was my turn. I said, Margaret, look, I agree with all this, and... I can give you my assurance, there'll be no extra money. It will all be found from within my departmental budget. And whilst no one is keener than I am on private sector activity, I have to tell you, I've been talking to the ex-Labour Member of Parliament for the East End of London, who has joined the Conservatives and is now a Conservative member. And he said to me, look, you'll never get anywhere in the East London because all the councillors are communists. Uh, that was lighting the blue touch paper. Margaret found in my favour. I returned in a state of euphoria to my department to be met by the permanent secretary who said, what a triumph, secretary, what a triumph. Of course, we realise it will have to be hybrid legislation. And everybody knows that hybrid legislation takes an age to get through parliament because anybody affected by it can petition to be heard. So I said, well, look, uh, we haven't got time. 
what's the solution? He said, well, you could take general legislation and then designate other sites. I said, where's the second worst site in the country? They said, Liverpool. Give me the general powers, I said, and designate London and Liverpool. Did you have a very clear strategy at the very start of how you were going to do it? Because regeneration is not a simple thing to do, of course. Did, did you have a very clear idea of how it was going to work? Well, if I had told you in 1979 that, look, I'm going to build an airport in East London, I'm going to create Excel, a major exhibition centre. I'm going to attract the dome. And uh, I'm going to have private sector housing all over the place. And one of the world's great financial centres. I think you'd have locked me up. And this is the essence of regeneration, is that you are trusting the local people to drive the opportunity. So did I have a clear strategy? No. It, well, it, let me put it like this. I had a strategy which said, unless we public and private sector work together, this will never happen. Unless I put someone in charge, it won't happen. Unless I mix the public and private sector representations on the board, it won't happen. So I created the framework in which things could happen. And I put the public money in to clear the dereliction and the pollution believing that if the state did that, that the private sector would then move in and seize the opportunities. That was the philosophy. And of course, in practice, it worked. And did it prove to be expensive? Because, of course, there's an argument going on within government about whether the Treasury is going to release lots of money to press ahead with the sort of regional redevelopment projects that Boris Johnson has been promising. Every pound of public money that I put from my own existing budget the private sector invested £10. So the concept of gearing was fundamental to the partnership that developed. Even in Liverpool, where there was nothing like the commercial opportunity and a great deal of despair and political aggravation, we got £1.5 from the private sector for every pound of public money. So it was fundamental to get much better value for what the state could afford. I wasn't asking for large sums of money. I was asking to spend existing budgets in a way that attracted large sums of private money. And you can only do that if you have a strategy based on the circumstances that exist on the ground, if you have a machinery to drive the plan, and if you have someone in charge. That's what devolution is about. Famously, Heseltine decamped to Liverpool in 1981 in the aftermath of the Toxteth riots, when residents of one of the city's most deprived areas took to the streets in anger at poverty and police brutality. More than a hundred youths fought a pitched battle against the police. Some were as young as 12, the oldest no more than 20. Already estimates of the damage have reached half a million pounds, and tonight police are on full alert in case the rioting breaks out again. Unemployment had soared to a 50-year high, the worst since the Great Depression, and few parts of the country had been harder hit. Thatcher's instinct was for an even more severe police crackdown. Her Chancellor, Geoffrey Howe, recommended the government's approach to Liverpool be one of managed decline. But Heseltine had other ideas. When they rioted, I felt a personal responsibility, and I said to Margaret, look... Of course, we have to back the forces of law and order and the police. But I think there's something more fundamental here. And I want to spend time walking the streets, listening. And she agreed. So I went. And it was well received. Well done, Secretary of State. We're glad someone's come at last and, and listening to what's going on. But that only lasted for about four or five days. How are you getting on, Secretary of State? What are you going to do? And I realised, of course, that the listening mode was bust. So I spent the next couple of weeks producing a list of things that I was going to do. I found sites and I said, we will clear this one up. I found other opportunities to encourage development. And by the time that I'd been there for three weeks, I had a list of 30 projects. And I then spent 18 months as a clerk of works once a week, I would go up. I had a team of people, officials and people from the private sector, and we made things happen. 
And that was the fundamental change in my experience of how the public and private sectors can work together so effectively, providing there's a local understanding of what needs to be done. You only need to walk past the gleaming skyscrapers of Canary Wharf or the great works of art hanging in the Tate Museum at Liverpool's Albert Dock to see the transformative impact of these early attempts at levelling up. And there were more. By the late 1980s, long after Heseltine had left the department, and indeed the government, London and Liverpool-style urban development corporations were being set up in major cities across the country, tasked with regenerating some of the most run-down areas. Manchester's UDC delivered the Bridgewater Hall, home of the Halle Orchestra. Sheffield's built the Meadow Hall Shopping Centre, the largest in Europe at the time. Riverside areas in Newcastle and Leeds were transformed. But these were, of course, very localised projects, and so raised plenty of questions about the extent to which investment wealth really was trickling down to residents in other parts of the cities, not to mention other parts of the country. And they were heavily criticised by some for bypassing local authorities and ignoring the needs of the local people who actually lived there. After the break, we'll hear how Michael Heseltine would take some if not all, of this criticism on board on his dramatic return to government after Thatcher's downfall. Stay with us. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. A message from Lloyd's Banking Group. Lloyd's Banking Group has championed social housing for decades. It provides finance, expertise and guidance to more than 340 housing associations across the UK. These range from small local associations of several hundred homes to much larger regional associations responsible for tens of thousands of properties. Each has an important role to play in their community to help people find a safe place to call home. Improving access to quality and affordable homes is central to Lloyds Banking Group's commitment to helping Britain prosper. That's why Lloyds Banking Group is calling for one million more homes to be made available for social rent over the next decade. If the Toxteth riots at the start of the 1980s helped kick off Michael Heseltine's first big levelling-up project, then an even more infamous set of riots at the start of the 1990s would help give him another crack of the whip. Rioters have been fighting running battles with police in central London tonight. The square had been turned into a virtual battleground. The poll tax riots were in many ways the beginning of the end for Margaret Thatcher. And while Heza famously couldn't quite grab the crown for himself, he did nevertheless return to government under John Major's leadership and made a beeline straight for his old department to continue his regeneration projects. Heseltine's flagship project, unveiled in 1991, was called City Challenge, where urban areas could bid for large dollops of regeneration cash. This time, Heseltine gave local authorities a central role in the process and let them fight it out for the funds. I wanted to try and apply the very same philosophy that I'd applied to the problems of derelict areas and land to social conditions and I invited 30 local authorities to compete with 10 packages of 35 million pounds and I said you tell me what you will do and how much you will add to that 35 million if you as one of the 30 local authorities are one of the 10 who are going to win. The result was extraordinary. First of all because in order to win the local authority had to consult the tenants living in the area. They had to see what the private sector or the third sector or the academic world would do 
to invest alongside the money that I was promising. Ten local authorities won. Twenty said some very nasty things about me. But next year, the twenty had all been to see the ten that had won. And that changed the culture, as well as getting very substantial sums of money poured into those areas. I look back with some satisfaction as to what undoubtedly was one of the most successful things I did in public life. City Challenge, in turn, led to something even broader and with an even more boring name than anything that had come before it. A scheme called the Single Regeneration Budget. The bidding process pioneered by Heseltine's City Challenge was retained. But this new scheme targeted neighbourhoods right across the country, offering targeted support both to individuals by retraining unemployed workers and to local infrastructure by investing public money into commercial developments and office space. In a sense, these projects were the culmination of almost 20 years of conservative thinking on regeneration. But did they work? As with most of these things, they have bits that work and bits that don't. This is Henry Overman, Professor of Economic Geography at the London School of Economics and author of a fairly damning research paper last year assessing the impact of Major's regeneration policy. The single regeneration budget, the bit of it I looked at, was the commercial development attached to that, where we spent billions of pounds. You know, that worked quite well for regenerating places where the supply of commercial buildings really was the barrier to further development. You know, London had a real problem with supply of commercial space. You go in, you do things... Uh, around the Docklands to supply more commercial buildings. Lots of firms go there. That's great. You know, if you go to other places and transform lots of commercial buildings, if the broader economy is struggling, it's just not a major barrier. And so what tends to happen in those places is that, you know, you're just basically shuffling employers around from their old commercial buildings to some sort of new subsidised commercial space. And the other thing we looked at is whether it does anything for the employment of local residents. And there we don't really find that it has very much effect. The type of jobs that are being created in these subsidised office developments are not the kind of jobs that go to poorer, struggling families who live in the local communities. So to me, the single regeneration budget is just one of a long string of policies where we're just not clear about what it's trying to do. If it's a policy about public land use and where jobs are done in a city, then it has its role to play. If uh, instead we think that sort of lots of shiny buildings is going to improve outcomes for our poorer citizens, you know, we're going to be disappointed because for most of our citizens that are struggling, access to shiny new buildings and office jobs is not the problem that is uh, causing them to be struggling in the first place. Regeneration, in other words, is kind of complicated. Just chucking money and shiny new office blocks at run-down areas, nice as those things are to have, does not always help the people living there as much as you'd hope. Now, the Labour opposition have been watching all of this through the 1980s and 90s, and by the time Tony Blair won his landslide election victory in 1997, it had its own ideas formed and ready to go. The neighbourhood approach of the single regeneration budget was refined into something even more targeted, which Blair called, in classic New Labour fashion, his New Deal for Communities, focused specifically on improving lives in a select number of the country's most deprived boroughs. And alongside that, something even more radical was being planned to boost development in the regions. We were then, and still are, the most centralised nation in Western Europe. This is Richard Caborn, who spent 10 years as a minister in Tony Blair's new Labour government, the first few of them as John Prescott's right-hand man in his newly created super ministry, the Department for Environment, Transport and the Regions. We need to take power from the centre, and I think the first thing that we did was obvious devolution to Scotland, devolution to Wales, and the setting up of the regional development agencies were the architecture of which we were going to build our devolution and to improve the economic performance of the nation. We'd done a huge amount of work before that. Uh, we had seen where the best models in Europe and the world were operating. And whilst you can't transplant these, you can actually learn from them. The regional development agencies, RDAs, 
were a pretty big deal in the 2000s if you cared about any of this stuff. Essentially, they were big, locally-based quangos, one for each of the newly designated regions of England, Northwest, Northeast, Yorkshire and Humber, and so on. They were given big budgets and full autonomy from London to invest locally as they saw fit. Whitehall, naturally, loathed the idea. They didn't want power to go away from the centre. So the first big battle was that your accounting officer didn't come through one of the departments of state, but was held within the regions and directly reported back to Parliament. Uh, And that, uh, in fairly crude terms, uh, was the system that we put in to break that link between the civil service. And then there was the single pot of money, because that's the other way that Whitehall controlled the regions. They just put out a dictate of, I've got a lump of money here, you can all bid for it, and therefore you have to gear all your policies to what they decide they want to actually fund. In fact, it was very interesting. Michael Eseltine, even he was one of those that defended the status quo. And I remember somebody interviewed Michael when he was president of the Board of Trade and set up government offices in the regions. And uh, this interviewer said to him, but how are you going to control those regions? He said, well, ever I have a pot of money at the side of my desk, they will always beat a pass to my door. Which really, to me, showed that if you want to control the regions, control the political devolution, but also control the money as well. So you set them up, you gave them the money and let them get on with it. What sort of projects would people have seen as a result of this? And what sort of tangible benefits do you think people in the regions did see as a result of this? Well, as I say, it varied from region to region. If I look at my own region of Yorkshire Numberside, I'm very proud of what the Advanced Manufacturing Research Centre has done with, with then at the university and the industry and has brought inward investment like Boeing, the very first factory outside the US to actually produce, and that's here in, in Yorkshire, across the Lancashire, the developments around their industrial base and particularly around nuclear. And they use Sellafield quite effectively there as well. That was a major development. I think in the Midlands, the car industry was really driving the increase in technology for the development of the car. The universities worked on their transferable technology in a much more effective way. Again, one of the weaknesses that we saw was that 80% of our R&D money goes to universities who really sometimes haven't got the skill set to take the R&D through into transferable technology, into wealth creation. The AMRC was a model that showed that that could be done. As you look back on it now, there were persistent criticisms as well as praise for the RDA. One was that they didn't always use their money wisely and that they were sometimes wasteful. Uh, and another was that they were essentially unaccountable in a, in a certainly a directly democratic way. One can always be critical, and, and rightly so. One needs to be critical of organisations like that. And I think some of the RDAs, as they grew and became very important within their regions, took on, quite honestly, things that they never ought to have been involved in. And that's when I think they started losing their focus of driving up the wealth creation of their region. But you've got to remember that we went in 1997, from around about, I don't know, 300 millions, 400 millions that was going in, to probably just over 2 billions that was actually being invested through the RDAs. They became a significant force, and I think a force for good. And I look round now at the landscape of the regions, and I still see major economic drivers that were put there during that period. And I, I believe it was when Clegg came in and Cameron came in on the coalition government and dismantled those, they took the heed of the civil servants and not the people who were creating wealth in the regions. As Cabourn says, in 2010, the RDAs were scrapped by the incoming Tory Lib Dem coalition. The bodies that replaced them naturally had their own tedious Whitehall acronym, LEPs, or Local Enterprise Partnerships. These were much smaller management boards led by local business leaders working alongside councillors rather than big public sector organisations like the RDAs. And crucially, they once again had to bid for their money from Whitehall through a regional growth fund set up by Deputy PM Nick Clegg. I think the Conservatives had really started to hate the concept of regionalism of any kind, for two reasons. 
This is Polly McKenzie, director of the Demos think tank, who worked as Nick Clegg's director of strategy from 2010 to 2015. One was because there had been an attempt by Labour to redesign the governance of England by introducing regional assemblies. The Conservatives had been opposed to that. And there had also been a real hatred of regionally driven housing and planning decisions. And so the whole Conservative Party had built up huge momentum of being just anti-regionalism. And we should go with real economic geographies. And that's not a stupid idea, right? Like the Southwest is really complicated and it has multiple different economies in it. And assuming that the whole of the Southwest Regional Development Agency is the best way to manage and prioritise growth spending, it, you know, it's obviously not going to be uh, because the needs of Exeter and Devon are really quite different from Bath and North East Somerset and different again from Cornwall. A regional development agency could come up with really good separate individual strategies for those areas. But equally, having more locally centred economic growth around what's called travel to work areas, there's really sound evidence behind that. What we tried then to put together was an economic development strategy for areas outside of London that was predicated particularly on trying to grow the private sector, but using government lending and government support as a kind of catalyst to chair the new regional growth fund, the coalition turned to, who else? Michael Heseltine again, by now a Tory peer in the House of Lords and approaching his 80th birthday, but still with no less passion and energy for regeneration than he'd enjoyed in his heyday. The government of the day had a, a very understandable problem. They were uh, going to reduce public expenditure and the losers would tend to be quite a lot of deprived areas where the cuts would hit hardest. So I was given a fund, a regional growth fund, in order to attract investment into those areas from the private sector. I used exactly the same philosophy. I said, right, we won't spend more than 50% of any project that comes forward, and the other half have got to come from the private sector. Well, we were overwhelmed by response, and it reinforces the view that I've stressed all through, that it isn't about extra money, it is about how you spend existing money effectively. Hesseltine also used his new place back in the heart of Whitehall to press upon senior Conservatives in government that they ought to get serious about devolution. He eventually found a willing ear in George Osborne, a Chancellor in urgent need of a positive story to tell after a miserable year in which he'd slashed popular spending projects, delivered an omni-shambles budget, was accused of triggering a double-dip recession and then, to cap it off, got booed at the 2012 Paralympic Games. The medals tonight will be presented by the Right Honourable George Osborne MP, Chancellor of the Exchequer. Ouch. Osborne realised he needed to get out of the cost-cutting treasury and find himself a project to win back some hearts. Heseltine had published a report in 2013 recommending all regeneration funds be re-channeled into a single pot, a multi-billion pound local growth fund which areas could bid for as they saw fit. And Osborne pressed ahead with the plan. Elected mayors were installed in big city regions with big pots of money to spend and big promises made of infrastructure investment for what he termed the Northern Powerhouse Project. I think that working alongside uh, George Osborne, I was able to be part of the move to directly elected mayors. That was a major step forward, and without any doubt, George Osborne played a pioneering part in bringing about a single pot of money which he top-sliced from the skills department, the housing department, the transport department, to name three, um, and offered, I think it was £2 billion a year over a six-year period, to local authorities that opted for the mayoral um, concept. Uh, so he made significant progress, and that was a great achievement. Uh, unfortunately, that's where it ended and virtually nothing has happened since then. This is harsh, but kind of fair. 
Theresa May showed little interest in maintaining Osborne's Northern Powerhouse project before her own premiership sank under the weight of Brexit. Boris Johnson has certainly talked a good game, and no previous Prime Minister has made regional development their number one flagship policy. But he's been too mired in Brexit, then a snap election, then a global pandemic, and now a self-inflicted wine and cheese scandal to make much headway on the policy front. Nevertheless, what limited Whitehall funds are available have been channelled north out of London in a dizzying array of formats. Since 2019, we've had a levelling up fund, a towns fund, a town deals fund, a shared prosperity fund, a community renewal fund and a future high streets fund, plus some money chucked in for free ports for good measure. It's all felt a little bit scattergun. A dollop for this cabinet minister's constituency here, a dollop for that marginal seat there. Indeed, what's clear is that public concern about left-behind parts of the country following the Brexit vote in 2016, coupled with this current government's rather shameless embrace of pork-barrel politics following the Red Wall revolution at the last election, means place-based investment, targeting specific areas, not specific groups of people, is very much back in fashion. But is there any evidence that it's going to work? Here's Polly McKenzie. One of the central challenges for us in terms of thinking about levelling up is, do you think about places or do you think about individuals? It's really hard to make those judgments because people are affected by the context in which they live. On the other hand, if you just put money into individual places um, and forget about the individuals, if you don't invest in the skills, for example, the education, people's individual health, I think it does undermine the effectiveness of those place-based interventions. I think if you if if you want to, I guess, narrow the gap between the the well-being, the happiness, and the the livelihoods of the poorest people and the richest people, and the poorest places and the richest places, you kind of have to do both. You have to think about the individuals, and you have to think about the environment in which they live. Mackenzie says this same debate extends to whether regeneration funds should be dished out via competitive process, as Heseltine has advocated, or just allocated to the people and places that need them most. This is just, you know, yet another one of those really deep public policy puzzles. Um, at one extreme, if you allocate funding according to simply needs, you do some assessment of precisely where the where the, the deepest need are, is that actually you've created a sort of weird incentive to have higher needs. If you have, on the other hand, an exclusively kind of competitive way of allocating funding, then you end up with essentially the, the strong and healthy places that are, have got spare capacity to put together whizzy bids. Um, they, they win all of the money and the places which are really struggling get left behind. And when you're thinking about growth in particular, it's do you put money into the places that are already doing okay so that they can really kind of go gangbusters and create enormous growth? Or do you put money into the places that are kind of struggling to even get off the ground where potentially it's going to be wasted? And you'd think the government might have learned the answers to some of these questions by measuring the impact of the various approaches and programmes we've discussed in this podcast. But sadly, you'd be mistaken. A National Audit Office report published this week revealed Whitehall has not been carrying out proper, detailed evaluations of any of these past local growth schemes, and so has ended up looking abroad for evidence as to what actually works. Here's the author and former FT journalist, Brian Groom, again. They all have bits of success in them, and probably the, consist the pattern is that they've tended to be half-hearted and inconsistent, um, and they've tended to change with every change of government, and each new, com new government has not really uh, uh, tried to learn lessons from its predecessor's experience, and that's often happened with um, uh, governments of the, the of the same party. So um, we've almost forgotten now, you know, the uh, David Cameron's rebalancing or. Uh, his and George Osborne's Northern Powerhouse, which never gets mentioned anymore. It's like as if we're in a, a new world. And a lot of that, the previous things are being in, undone. The absolute model for regeneration in the modern world has been the revival of Eastern Germany. 
and a bit special, you might think, since 19, unification in 1990. Um, and it involves spending massive money, about two trillion euros. Um, but it's been successful. And the, the, the key thing about it was that it had cross-party support and the programmes were designed to last for decades. And we've we've never had that. I don't think the projects were particularly unique. It was welfare spending, some spending on infrastructure. There was some business support. They weren't especially unusual programmes. If there's one common pattern to success in regeneration, it's a high degree of local decision-making. And if you look at the big economic success in the North in the past 20, 30 years, it's been the revival of the bigger cities led by Manchester and Leeds, but also Newcastle, now Liverpool, Sheffield and others. And that's happened largely through partnership between the local political leaders and local businesses. It's very hard for a central government deciding everything in Whitehall to decide how to revive anywhere, really. And there's a lot of evidence that having decision-making concentrated in the Treasury has biased investment towards one part of the country and held back some others. It sounds like the other thing that you really think we need is some sort of consistency of policy. That's a sort of cross-party agreement like we talk about with social care on how to rebalance the economy. Uh, I think it would be helpful, yes. I'm not seeing much evidence of that. And it's that would be an optimistic thing to think, I think. <laughs> To some extent, then, this week's levelling up white paper is encouraging, despite the lack of detail and the glaring lack of new funds. In one sense, the never-ending churn of ideas continues. It sounds like the LEPs, for example. You know, the bodies which replaced the RDAs, which replaced the UDCs, do try to keep up, will soon suffer the same fate as their predecessors. But they'll be replaced with a souped-up and extended version of George Osborne's Metro-Mayor model of governance. One you suspect, given the popularity of big local figures like Andy Burnham and Ben Houchin, any future government will find much harder to scrap and replace with yet another big new idea. Indeed, maybe the most encouraging thing of all about this white paper is that it proposes genuinely long-term goals stretching out over the whole of this decade and set into law which the next Tory or Labour government, should there be one, may actually try to follow. Because the one thing that's clear from 40 years of patchwork regeneration projects is that if Britain really wants to get serious about levelling up the country, it's going to take more than the efforts of just this government, or even the next one, to get it done. Thanks for listening to Westminster Insider with me, Jack Blanchard. If you've enjoyed it, do please subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. These episodes are not really time-sensitive, so why not have a look through our back catalogue too for others that you might enjoy. My producer this week was James Tyndale of Whistledown Productions, and here at Politico, my executive producer is Christina Gonzalez, and my UK editor is Kate Day. I'll be back next week. I'll see you then. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.